and welcome to episode 5 of Queer Sounds. My name is Hannah, pronouns they, them. And in the studio, I promised I would do this. Fabian Leach. Welcome, Fabian. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, no, this actually was the thing, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't do it unless I'd give you a drum roll. <laughs> I don't know, I mean... I- you can't no, hold me accountable mess. for what I say. I'm just messing up. <laughs> right, Fabian, please introduce yourself, name, pronouns, what you do in daily life. Uh, my name's Fabian, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, at the moment, what I do in daily life is recover from hangovers. All right, yeah. yeah. Um, fun fact, you're the first he, him on this podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now we're getting diverse with I men. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get some male representation in <laughs> Uh, unlike some aspects of media we're all familiar with Uh, no but the reason I invited you is because you uh, studied musicology yeah I uh, graduated in August from the applied musicology course at University of Utrecht uh, and I did my thesis on Eurovision it was an aesthetic study of Eurovision and basically coming to the conclusion that because of the spheres in which the music was presented it doesn't count as pop music despite sounding like it that sounds complicated. It was. I failed almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the almost now? Why did you pass? Uh, I passed because my argument was all right. It was just the way I presented it was crap. Is it so? Because a lot of people love Eurovision. A lot of people love Eurovision, uh, but it is often spoken about outside of popular music spheres. Like Especially in academic circles, it's spoken about as uh, a political performance or something that is inherently queer and therefore... Uh, you know, the way that it's presented uh, doesn't happen in the same way as regular pop music. Like, you can have queer pop music, you can have political pop music, but Eurovision itself, it's um, on a political stage, it's written for a political stage, and it's written specifically for the competition. Mm-hmm. So um, it doesn't occur and it doesn't have the same organic sphere as regular pop music that is just written, released, and consumed in a much freer manner. In the popular music sphere, Eurovision is, you know, written and released specifically for a Eurovision consumption. So did you feel like there were more differences than similarities between Eurovision pop music and, you know, so to speak, regular pop music? Because Uh, it's still very staged, it's still very, you know, directed. In the music itself, like if you're actually talking about the musicality of it, like uh, melody and tonality and performance and such, no, there's not much different in the meat of it, mm-hmm. but uh, the stage on which it is performed and the circumstances under which it is made uh, are what defines it. Also including like the televoting and stuff, like that makes it all political, doesn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's a better metric to measure European politics than any EU summit can offer. <laughs> to that extent, would you say that there is also a similarity between regular pop music and European pop music because, you know, say Ukrainian artists aren't going to be that big in Russia, if that's true, I don't know if it is because I haven't read up on it, but it sounds like something that could make sense. Yeah, it's definitely, um, for many countries, it is a way for them to show their best and brightest. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look at countries like, um, especially Western European countries, which have a much more dominant role in the international music industry, So, like, the UK, definitely, Ireland, Netherlands, France, Germany. um, They will not put out, like, their current top 
native artist. Yeah, no. Like, if the UK put Adele in Eurovision, we'd win. We'd win. <laughs> that's what hap- That's what would happen. Yeah. We'd win. That's not fair. You yeah. don't put Adele in Eurovision. But technically you could. Technically you could, but it's also, does Adele want to do that? Because that's career suicide. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um. I mean, for for twenty for twenty nineteen, uh, the Dutch send in uh, someone who either just graduated from like some uni, uh, some some music college, or hasn't even graduated yet. So, I feel like would that would that be strategic career wise? Absolutely not. No, no. Eurovision is uh, never seen as a good career move. It's like the Voice of Holland or X Factor or. Um, you know, all of these music competition TV shows, you don't hear about them afterwards. Like um, One Direction, mm-hmm. they had their rise to fame by being on X Factor. They didn't yeah. win X Factor. They came second. The rec- record deal that you get from X Factor is a piece of shit. Um, it's a million pound record deal for one album, and that's not even enough for one album for most people. Yeah. Um, one Direction got a record deal specifically from Simon Cowell, who signed them on a much better and longer deal for three albums. And um, that, you know, was way better for them. That's usually what happens. Second place in competitions like that is way better for your career than actually winning. All right, so I feel like that's also why we'd never seen anyone uh, from Eurovision that's also been on The X Factor. Are those two... Are those two- no, I think it's to do with the licensing. Like, if you win oh. X Factor, you are essentially uh, tied so close to the um, writers of that contract that y- you can't do anything for a year. Like, uh, someone uh, someone who won, like, uh, I think it was like 10 years ago or something, uh, Alexandra Burke, she had a really, really good, like, year of music from that. Uh, she had a Christmas number one because that's always what they aim for. You win X Factor, you get a Christmas number one. Yeah. Um, and uh, she got a decent album out of it. That was in like number three on the top ten of albums when it was released. Um, and now she is doing gigs at Pontins, which is a really shitty holiday park in the UK. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, I also feel like that's been going on with uh, Dutch winners of like talent shows, like they. Uh, end up having a peak in like 2006 2007 and now doing like musicals and stuff yeah which is still quite reasonable actually compared yeah, to yeah. holiday parks i think alexander burke has also had like a, a quick quick spin on uh west end but um yeah i think she was in some again like her career seems to peak in christmas are you someone who follows that kind of stuff like eurovision or talent shows i certainly follow eurovision because i think it's very interesting it's a good way of uh seeing how uh politics does affect the music industry how you can sort of have a little bit of foresight for the next year Mm -hmm. on how things are going to go with public relations how things are going to go with music and how things are going to go in the music industry um, do you feel like this year is going yeah. to be more political than ever because it's set oh, in Israel? Absolutely. I mean, it's already becoming political. It's already being boycotted. Yeah. Um, and also with the Icelandic uh, entry as well, that's incredibly political. It's uh, three queer women in BDSM gear playing punk music. Ooh. And that's in bloody Israel. Like, if that's not political, I don't know what is. Yeah. Honestly. Wow. 
to be fair, I didn't expect to dive into this much of a deep political conversation so early in the podcast. <laughs> no, but Eurovi Eurovision will get you into that. That's the thing. It is, it's countries competing on a stage. How is that not political? Yeah, that's definitely true. And it's more political compared, compared to other like countries competing. Like it's, I feel like it's more of an outlet of political opinion than, say, uh, a World FIFA Cup or, mm. or, 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 or the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the World Cup, um, the politics is more in the stadium than it is on the field. Yeah, oh, yeah like, that's uh, true. Uh, for example, like when the Euros was on, like the European Championship, and um, Russia was beat by England, my mate got uh, beat up by a Russian guy, and then it was oh, brain for, like, with a brain damage for about a year. Because it is something that, you know, people tie their national identity to sport. People tie their national identity to these things, especially football. Yeah. Football is a constant among pretty much every country. Like, England, it's a huge thing. Russia, it's a huge thing. Brazil. Like, these are all big countries in sport. I mean, with the last Euro Cup, the Netherlands weren't involved. Uh, but I do remember my brother going to a festival <laughs> in uh, in Belgium. And at the end of the weekend, he was just shouting along with... It's coming home, it's coming home, football's coming home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember last year at the World Cup, we'd go down to Florin, the English pub here, mm -hmm. um, and it was about 95% English people in there just absolutely packed. Yeah. Like, all with our pints of Carling or something. <laughs> you know, the crap stuff. The really <laughs> shit beer. You know, we have to have something warm and bad in order to enjoy football. But we're all there going, it's coming home, it's coming home, football's coming home. I mean, the combination of football and, and, and alcohol is ironic within itself because they don't allow alcohol in football stadiums, do they? Um... Yeah, they do. In England, at least. like um, I think in the Netherlands they don't then. I've heard somewhere. somewhere. Uh, it's just really oh, expensive. It's yeah. like oh, £7 pounds for a pint, which is expensive. That is expensive. Yeah. All right. Um, before we get into more politics, let's <laughs> kick off by something light and breezy. Uh, it's the first track of the day, first musical memory. go s club seven uh it's a track called reach yep <laughs> yeah um when i was a kid s club seven were like one of the most engineered like f1 sports car um like singing groups vocal groups like um it was 
just at the end of like uh, 90s boy bands and girl groups mm-hmm. were like petering off from their careers and S Club 7 comes in like 1998 and had a really good career because like by then the industry had like got the hang of it yeah and they were engineered they were like the perfect vocal group and I was like six when that came out and being six years old you don't have the, your finger on the pulse of the music industry or like what's coming out what's on the top 10 mm-hmm. it was just that's what was heard everywhere <laughs> and I just remember hearing that all the time and eventually liking it because you know I was sick it's a catchy song too yeah. I mean whatever age you are it just kind of bounces oh, yeah. about uh, whether or not you like the fact that you're doing that because you know it's it would pass as a guilty pleasure nowadays oh absolutely I think it absolutely is I could, I'll be putting it on my guilty pleasures playlist a lot of effort <laughs> will be on there and Steps as well which is sort of like um, slightly more mature version of S Club mm-hmm. uh, but yeah now that S Club's career was huge in the early 2000s yeah I um, I kind of dove into the charge of that day because uh, this song specifically was released in 2000 uh, its peak position in the UK singles chart was two. Um, the only one that was, uh, the, so the number one at the time was uh, Feel So Good by Sonic. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, I looked into it and I was actually quite surprised because I never heard of S Club 7 before. Really? Yeah, no, I, I haven't because they weren't that big a thing in the Netherlands. Yeah, true. I, uh, and uh, from what I've, from what my quick look at the Wikipedia page taught me was that they weren't too big outside of the English-speaking world in general. No. Like they, they were, they were really big in uh, on, on the British Isles. Then there's uh, Australia, New Zealand, where they did reasonably, but you know, they really, really tried to tackle the states. And um, I remember I was like seven or eight. They started this TV show on um, CBBC, which is like a kids TV show, kids TV channel on a BBC network. And um, it was basically about, it was meant to be reality TV. Yeah, during it, the MTV era, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, where they're all actually scripted. Mm-hmm. Um, a best club seven in LA. And like, look how good they're doing in LA. <laughs> why why don't the Americans enjoy them and all that? Like, it's this really weird. Sort of like, you know, they're doing well, but they're struggling to break the ice of the American industry. Um, uh, I mean, that's probably because of timing too. Because you know, you already had a bunch of staged acts and and scripted acts. So maybe there just wasn't a market for them anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, like the Spice Girls had already broken that market like uh, yeah. seven years prior to that. And that's just one example, like Backstreet yeah. Boys and Sync. It's just well, Backstreet it, Boys and NSYNC are already American, but like with the British bands going over there, like um, Blue and Boyzone, those guys did all right there. They managed to break into the industry a little bit better. But S Club Seven was aimed at young kids. Right. It was yeah. a band for kids. Like that sort of music, like you'd hit, hear it at school discos. Yeah. It's not really something that an adult would enjoy and <laughs> you know think. You know what? I've got some pretty good music taste. <laughs> you know, what? I think I think my my taste has developed and has gone further than that of the average adult because I'm sitting here with my cup of coffee and my cigarette, listening to S Club Seven, Reach <laughs> on on 180 oh. gram vinyl. I have you know, 
on my, my Sony like talk base. Yeah, record. no, it's definitely something to be posh about. Oh yeah. Yeah, the no. It's... S Club snobbery is real. <laughs> the S stands for snob. <laughs> uh, no, but um, you know, I uh, compared uh, the UK charts at the time uh, to the Dutch charts at the time. Uh, you know, like mentioned, S Club Seven nowhere to be found. And the same week, when I guess what the number one in the Netherlands were. Was it just some sort of comedy music? Because that's all what, what I hear from like. It was Britney Spears, Oops, I did it again. Really? Re- released around the same time, number one, the same week. Wow. Followed by uh, Freestyle of a Bumfunk MCs. Mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. <laughs> nice. It's uh, got our nostalgic glasses on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, but it's, it's really funny because we tend to think uh, British and Dutch music is similar or at least a charge you'd think would be but there are way more differences than 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 expected i think definitely when it comes to like the main songs that people will remember like um the things that define your childhood the things that um are the most memorable anthems like anthems will be memorable like everyone knows mr Brightside. yeah everyone knows wonder wall everyone knows don't look back in anger and stuff like that like these are all things that, um everyone will know but when it comes to like you know which industry is more dominant when it comes to like english speaking music within europe i would say that the american industry is still more dominant we have way more american labels here mm-hmm. um british labels like emi have been absorbed already by american labels they, yeah. the big 3 of like umg smg and um uh the other one <laughs> is it like warner, warner yeah yeah uh wmg yeah they uh they all sort of like, uh, they're American music labels and they've absorbed local labels and uh, in- independence within Europe. And um, I don't know if it's... Uh, I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it come in waves? Because, you know, we kind of had uh, a British wave in the early 90s and then the late 90s it was American again. The second British invasion, yeah. Yeah. Because um, there was the first one in the 60s with the Beatles. Exactly. And, the and, then, the, and then the in the early 90s with Blur and Oasis. Uh... Blue Oasis, Spice Girls, definitely. Yeah. Um, but the Spice Girls were engineered to follow on that. They were actually riding the coattails of that deliberately. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, that makes sense. Like the concept of the Spice Girls was already a thing before they had chosen who the Spice Girls were. Okay, that um, makes sense. So, again, that's a very engineered thing. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, a lot of English-speaking or uh, native English headquartered labels have got headquarters here. Like, Amsterdam is a big hub for that stuff, like... Universal's moving over from London into Amsterdam now. You've already got Warner Brothers there. Epitaph uh, Yeah, Epitaph as well. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, an EMI, I think. No, that's not in the Netherlands, but in France, Paris. Okay, yeah. So, you do have, like, um, all of these labels from native English countries. I mean, it does have something to do with, uh, you know, just getting some foot onto Europe mainland. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a huge market here. There's a lot of money here for music. And, you know, there's some massive uh, festivals as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and like Pukul Pop as well. Like, that's yeah. huge. I mean, Foo Fighters routinely play that one. Um, there's Mad Cool in Spain. Yeah. Uh, what else have you? Like Southside in Germany, Hurricane, yeah. Saget. Yeah, yeah there's, um, yeah, there's tons. And these are, you know, big things that people want to get their artists into. And um, to have your headquarters in that country makes it a hell of a lot easier. 
Mm-hmm. And I was trying to do some research, trying to see if this idea was true. I don't I don't think this has any like uh good evidence, but I was trying to see if um are there more English uh language songs in uh the top ten of European countries. I bet there are. If if there is um a native English language label headquartered there. So like uh you know, WMG, SMG and UMG. Um, you know, the big three, they're all from the States. They're all English-speaking. Would they push for more English-language songs? And I, all right, just for, just for those unaware, yeah. WMG is Warner Music Group, yeah. uh, SMG is SMG, Sony, Sony Music. Music Group, and Universal Music Group, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. sorry. But yeah, they, uh, I was trying to see if they did push for more English-language in the top 10 charts, and it is about 50-50, except in places like Finland, um, in Romania, surprisingly. Um, Why surprisingly? Uh, I would have expected... Uh, I mean, I was also looking at the percentage of people who speak English as a second language, and Romania okay, yeah. is, I'd say, about halfway in Europe. Uh, the Netherlands is number one outside of the UK. Um, and then Italy is at the bottom... So their entire chart is Italian, except for one English song that I found on there from like a couple months of research. I was like bopping about on the bottom seven, eight, nine. Right. Um, and I guess uh, Finland would have Swedish as their biggest second language. No, it was uh, the majority of their chart was English. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and then there was. I was talking about population. Oh, population-wise, when it comes to languages. Uh, I don't know. I was mainly looking at like English because that was what, what I was looking at, like the dominance of English language in okay. uh, music charts. And Finland had a huge amount of English language um, songs there and like two or three Finnish mm. ones. But um, I but, think what I should have taken into account as well is like what kind of people will be buying music? Yeah. Like what is the demographic in that country for music purchase and music piracy? How does that country measure their top ten like, do they take into account streaming, for example? Right. And stre- uh, the streaming demographics will be different to the purchase demographics. Uh, that, that, that all uh, goes one way. It's like from, from English-speaking uh, native, native languages, uh, native countries, to uh, non-English-speaking native languages, uh, countries. But it doesn't work the other way around. Like, you won't find any uh, Dutch or Finnish or Italian songs in the UK chart. Absolutely not. I think... Um, it's like whenever the only someone... recent example I thought I found was Despacito. Okay, that was the one with Justin Bieber in it, oh, not the yeah. original Daddy Yankee one. Oh, no, right. Daddy Yankee is a Dutch artist. Hang on, someone else. Never mind. Mm. Forgotten his name already. Uh, <laughs> Louis Fonzi. That's the one. Yeah, Fonzi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but um, no, but you know when someone uh, from the Netherlands or you know any country really tries to break through in the UK, they're just being hit with all of this interest. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, the UK has never really felt a part of Europe, and I think this is something that also goes towards Brexit. Um, I think, I'm trying to just think of uh, a couple of years ago, there was this, I think she's Danish, uh, called Robin. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, she's Swedish. Swedish, yeah. Or she, they, I, have no, I don't know what, they, what their pronoun she is. I think it's she, but I don't want to assume. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, they had a couple hits in the UK, especially like the indie charts. Um, and then after like one album was released, their career just kind of 
yeah. out of the UK. Like it's very fast paced there. If you can't keep up with um, you know, the our one album every one and a half years sort of routine, then you will be forgotten. And it's happening more and more and more now. It's really hard to maintain a career in the music industry, let alone start one. Yeah. I think Robin did um a collab with Metronomy a couple of years ago on their album Summer O Eight. And it's a good track. I mean, you know, they're getting royalties from it, at least of that. But yeah. um, it definitely wasn't something to get them back into the indie music scene in the UK because that has long since left the station. That has moved on so yeah. much further now. Have you heard of Pip Blom? Because this this Dutch band or Dutch girl who is actually doing quite okay for herself in, in, in the UK, primarily by just playing a bunch of festivals, because she's she makes the kind of music that would do ideal on any stage at mm. like two or three a.m. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I don't know the name. Uh, there is this one girl, Norwegian girl, who's uh, doing quite all right for herself now in the UK. Is it Sigrid? Sigrid, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've been. The thing is, like, you know, I don't really keep my eyes on. Um, the charts anymore in the UK because you know I'm not 14 anymore. Mm. That's the so, thing. Like these are these are people who are now targeted at much much younger oh, demographic. Yeah. So there was an ad, so there was a time where you would like actively keep an eye on the charts. Yeah, I mean, um, I used to watch a lot of music TV, uh, not like MTV, but like Enemy and uh, VH1 and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would watch the charts, and I, I used to like on Enemy, which is more like. Um, It's a New Music Express. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, They had a TV channel back when they used to charge for the uh, magazine yeah. and, you know, still get enough revenue to keep a TV channel. When they even still uh, had a magazine, weren't online only. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. I remember when they went free in record stores and that was actually really good for them. Yeah. But it was like 50% ads. Um, but yeah, they used to have a TV channel. They used to do uh, an indie top 20 every week and... I'd come from home from school, get some pen and paper, and sit and write down the tracks that I enjoyed. Oh, cool! Um, like um, Larue going in for the kill was one that right. I really enjoyed from that. I, um, I I I reckon that's not how uh, how you kept track of uh, S Club Seven. Absolutely not. <laughs> I kept track of S Club Seven by attending every single school disco I could as a kid. You're bluffing. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd uh, go there in like a true. sequin T-shirt. Everyone's in, in, the, in the school gym and barefoot. Yeah, no, but you know, um, the 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 indie chance. Were there any more fun fun artists you found out about that way? Uh, Larue was definitely one that I've sort of uh, maintained as a favorite of mine. Um, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs is you don't want to uh, heads will roll. I remember mm-hmm. the music video from that was like this gremlin Michael Jackson kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Moonwalking through an alleyway, yeah, it was it was um a really nice way of sort of uh, getting myself into indie music because before then, like my main source of music was my friends. Like you know, have you heard of Lady Gaga? This new track, <laughs> Let Just Dance, has come out, and she's so weird. She's wearing a swimsuit. <laughs> yeah, no, so. Indie is a keyword here. You weren't keeping track of the pop charts. Oh, absolutely not. I, I fell off that one like uh, quite early on. I kind of realized that uh, pop music wasn't something that I wanted to listen to. It was more something that I felt I had to. Yeah. As a kid, like you're constantly looking for validation from your peers, and that comes in every single way that you 
like behave and um and go about yourself and that includes what sort of music you consume what kind of clothes you wear i mean i went to a school with uniforms so that wasn't really a thing but it was like you know kids will have the fanciest bags and the fanciest shoes and you know just anything to differentiate yourself yeah like even the little things like uh you know pandora bracelets or um you know what kind of headphones you have what kind of phone you have what kind of mp3 player you have like uh it was quite a rich town so you know there were kids who were more wealthy or well from more wealthy families who would you know they'd have a louis vuitton bag to put their folder in at mm. school and that was like a 13 year old kid whereas you know you'd think that uniforms are there to you know kind of pretend that 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 class difference isn't there yeah and um Yeah, kids will always find a way to bully each other. That's the sad thing yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, before we tie the school uniform thing into trans experience, let's move on to uh, track number two. Oh yeah. All right, there we go. This one's called Man to Man. Dorian Electra. You know I ain't straight, but I'm gonna say it straight to you. And look you in the face every time I talk to you. I wanna be clear and not convolute I'll say what I mean I expect the same from you So you wanna play rough in the parking lot So you acting tough but I know you're not We can take it outside, it's got the street light I just really wanna fight with you Man to man, hand to hand One on one, a friend to Man to man, uh, whereas they're neither, uh, from what I've gathered. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I actually want to make sure they use the right pronouns. It's they, them. Um, Fabian, indulge me. Why this track? Tell me all about it. Um, well, you asked a favorite queer artist, and uh, I found um, Dorian Electra through Spotify's um, Transcend uh, playlist, which is uh, a playlist full of trans and gender non-conforming artists and Dorian Electra was on the cover of it and also the first person on there mm -hmm. and I saw the cover up for Man to Man and I was like I'm in love with this person um, before even listening to the track well halfway through the track and the track was like half of it as well like right. uh, the artwork and the track itself like I need to check this out further before I start torturing myself over this one um Yeah, they, uh, they're an LA-based um, like queer act. They often do uh, queer events in America, uh, kind of like drag king style sort of stuff, but it's less um, male impersonation, more uh, just gender play and such. Um, so, uh, yeah, some really interesting stuff coming out of there. And, I've just had a new track out called Flamboyant, which uh, is absolutely wild. Right, so um, you picked Man um, to Man because, you know, Flamboyant just wasn't out yet at the time, or would oh, you have stuck to the same track? I would have stuck to Man to Man because that's the first one I heard by them and also my favourite, absolutely. Right. I mean, Flamboyant's good, but it's no Man to Man. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 
for those unaware, uh, the track was like released like less than a year ago, uh, yeah. like uh, late 2018. Um, I really enjoyed the video clip as well with a bunch of nudges to um, Michael Jackson, like you said, Joan of Arc. Oh yeah, there's um, there's two different or three actually different scenarios in the whole video. Yeah, it's like the boxing. There's the uh, boxing scene. There's um, like the back alley fight club scene. And then there's um, like Joan of Arc at the Last Supper almost, and they're they're in like a full suit of armor with like swords, and they're dancing with swords, and it's crazy. I love it. So, um, you know, tying into the queer experience of this all, um, is this an artist you fell in love with because you relate to the way they? Visualize their queerness or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't quite know how to put this. Um, I think as also a transmasculine person, because Dorian Lecture is transmasculine. Um, I think uh, I definitely related to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they express their masculinity when they do it mm-hmm. is similar to how I want to be able to express my masculinity when I do it. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I really felt that sort of connection there. Also, they're just really pretty. Okay, fair. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, that. Um, you kind of got me thinking that because uh, you told me you're not, you're in no way non-binary. You're like just trans man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Full very stop. Binary. Yeah, uh, yeah, but you know, I didn't feel like uh, that. That doesn't go for Dorian Electra, right? And then it got me thinking. You know, I don't actually know any examples of trans men in music. Um, Cher's son. Cher's son is a trans man, and he's had a few tracks out. Okay. Yeah. Did I mean, you find out about that because you read upon it, or did you no, just come I, across it? I came across it because he was a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race once. Now, I don't know of any actual like trans men in music, but, I mean, if you go through the Transcend playlist on Spotify, there will be some. It's mainly non-binary people, trans women, mm-hmm. um, and a couple of trans men in there, but um, they don't actually specify on the playlist like yeah you know this is how this person identifies no you have to find that one out yourself if you're actually interested in this person yeah um i don't know any examples of like binary trans men in music except for Cher's son what i uh, personally liked uh musically uh about dorian electris their use of autotune yes because you know voices are little bit of a thing as you might imagine uh, within the trans experience so you know actively using autotune that prominently I, I felt like that was a statement within its own yeah they were almost duetting with themselves yeah um and uh you kind of do listen like uh, especially like the newest stuff that they've done uh i'd say man to man and flamboyant are the two examples where they've used it quite heavily to toy with a uh, vocal uh like gender or well you know display of gender through vocals um because their earlier work they didn't use autotune whatsoever just you know their femme voice mm-hmm. the whole time um but it is really interesting and they tend to like in the bridge period of each song they do sort of like a, a little femme vocal thing without the autotune and then you know it's this really cool switch right like uh like in man to man it's a uh, it doesn't stay at one um, tonality the entire time. Like the timbre of it doesn't maintain the whole time. They, they're switching between like a, a male sounding voice and a female sounding voice the whole time. And it isn't even in, totally in time with the music. Yeah, no. 
and uh, about the lyrics, because, you know, this song, Man to Man, is uh, obviously about toxic masculinity, um, which, you know, that's the great thing that they're putting it out there. Um, how do you experience that? Because as a trans man, do you feel like toxic masculinity is a thing you have to deal with? Um, it's something I have to deal with both, like, uh, as someone who is still assumed to be female. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do sort of get the... the arse end of it but also I do perpetuate it myself I mean I've been socialized as a man and that means toxic masculinity too and it's taken me a long time to sort of uh, become aware of that and luckily I've got some very good friends who are able to point it out to me as well when I'm being a shithead but yeah it's I mean I think it is also something that uh, when being a trans man and taking part in toxic masculinity is something that, you know, is part of your masculinity, which you're holding on so tight to as validation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I let go of this toxic part of it, am I less of a man? Like, even if a cis guy lets go of it, at least he still has a dick. Right. Like, it is sort of this desperation to hold on to anything that is considered masculine, no matter how toxic it is, to validate yourself and your masculinity. And, um, you know, there are, there is definitely insecurity. I mean, yeah. of course I'm going to be insecure about this. Yeah. It's something that I've been battling with for a very long time. And, um, you know, I think uh, it takes time to become uh, comfortable in yourself to learn that you don't need everything to be validated. You know, just expressing masculinity in a non-toxic way is enough. Um, to what extent have you uh, been socialized as a man? Like, uh, for how long has that been? going on uh for example you know we briefly touched upon uh, school uniforms were you wearing skirts were you wearing trousers i was wearing trousers because right. i actively refused to wear skirts the teachers wanted me to wear skirts uh, especially when i was like in primary school mm-hmm. and my mum had to you know have a conversation with her saying he doesn't want to do that he's yeah. not gonna do it i was having tantrums at home over it i actively refused to because i mean when you're a kid you recognize gender already um you recognize how people express their gender and uh, what sort of biological signifiers of gender there are as well. And that is where dysphoria comes in. And it's also with how you want to present yourself when it comes to like clothes and behaviors and stuff. And I was definitely, I am still definitely socialized as a man because the things that I identified with were are men things, man things. Like, you know, right, yeah, no, but not, not having breasts, having a penis, wearing trousers, being toxic, cars, bikes, you know, yeah. guns, meat. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's just, it's just, I was just, uh, because, you know, we haven't known each other for that long and I just wasn't yeah. aware uh, if this is something that only started happening, uh, like the socialization part of it, like whether or not that started happening years ago or. No, this is definitely something, like, especially from what my mum's told me when um, I was very young, I've always refused femininity. Right. I, I would go around in like a football jersey and a baseball cap and going to people, I'm a boy! We, we, we talked about this at some other point, like the comic effect of the word boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, but... Um, Something that I've noticed uh, whenever we talk about stuff, whether it's in a social or professional atmosphere, whenever we're together in a room, we always end up talking about history. Uh, That's something I want to continue now. Mm. Because 
uh, we had this uh, we had this meeting at some point, and in the end, we ended up talking about the New York Dolls because no one I know knows as much about music history as you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit of a music history nerd. You yeah. don't say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the New York Dolls. Um, yeah, really, really interesting band. They started off punk, basically, in both the States and the UK. They inspired the Ramones in New York, and they inspired um, the Sex Pistols and their style of music in the UK, which essentially kicked off the punk scene in the early mm -hmm. 70s. Um, but they also <laughs> inspired glam rock by accident. And when you think of, like, glam rock, you do think of men in lipstick and leotards yeah. and big fluffy hair, but they're also, like super masculine it's like you know you know they're wearing all that stuff so they can show off their package and you know look pretty for the gals and you know it is peacocking but i never actually thought of it peacock. that way oh it really is like if you look at like um thin lizzy poison like yeah. all of these like hair metal and glam rock bands i mean david bowie is not an example of that because yeah no uh he came from more sort of like a, a queer perspective, like his travel into glam rock was different and he mm -hmm. was very early glam rock. But then you see like a hair metal and stuff like that, which were inspired by the New York Dolls look, um, but not their philosophy. Yeah, okay, that makes um, sense. That is all sort of like, you know, screaming, like big muscles, blasting guitar solos, double kick drums, you know, really masculine and rage-fueled rock um but also you're wearing like three cans of hairspray in your hair and you're wearing like some pink like glittery leotard that you know really shows the dick outline i love the contradiction in that because you know stuff that was perceived so uh masculine actually had their roots in like queer culture right oh yeah the new york dolls were four drag queens who played punk music yeah. And then, like, uh, if, like, you know, Thin Lizzy or Poison or, like, guys like that, fat, like, knew at the time mm -hmm. that the New York Dolls, which were their main source of inspiration for their look, were just a bunch of drag queens and gay guys playing punk music. Too bad that they don't yeah. get as much credit as they do. No, I mean, because they're very underground and they like it that way. That's the thing with punk music. Like, yeah. as soon as someone gets credit, they're then considered, like, uh... You know, you no longer got credit within the punk scene. Like, if you've got credit for causing some sort of historical event or being the inspiration for something big, then um, you've no, no longer got credit within the punk scene because then you're not underground anymore. You've got your name in a book. Get out. You don't yeah. belong here. It could mean, uh, like, a, a crabs in a bucket type of way, uh, type of thing, because, you know, if... Uh, bands like New York Dolls refuse to take uh, or don't like taking credit for what they've achieved. You know, uh, I feel like people won't follow in their footsteps. Um, it's, no, it's, thing, it ties like... into representation, right? If they don't reach, if they don't reach high uh, high ends, then who will? Well, that's the thing. They're refusing to take credit for it, but that won't stop people from giving them credit. It's rebellion. That's the thing, they're doing it because they're rebelling against it. They're not going to actively work against people writing books about them. They're going to be difficult. Yeah. But, like, the punk scene still recognizes them. People still definitely recognize them as some of the like, the earliest, earliest people in, in punk. 
you know, I mean, they may that, refuse it. But. That's only a nerd thing, though, because, you know, when you ask uh, just a guy in the street, you know, who started the punk, if they know anything at all, they're going to either say Ramones or Sex Pistols. Yeah. Which is, I think, a waste. Yeah, that's the thing, because um, it is absolutely like punk nerds or music history nerds will know the New York Dolls. Yeah. Um, then it becomes a qualifier. And it's like this little badge. Like if you're asked the question, you know, who do you think started punk music and you say New York Dolls, you get a little badge. You you, yeah. you get that little you know glimmer of pride. Like I'm a real punk. I yeah, really know my stuff. A little bit of street cred. It is. It's credibility and uh, within the punk scene, I mean, I don't know enough about the punk scene to know like how far credibility goes, but in like the hip hop scene, for example, that really goes a long way. Like yeah. if you don't know, like, um, I mean, if you go how, about and ask yeah. who started hip hop, and you're going to say De La Soul and not someone like DJ Cool Herc, then yeah, yeah, like uh, Cool Herc or like Africa Bombarda yeah. or you know Flash, Flash, exactly. Like um, you know the big three of New York, yeah, who started hip hop as a music genre because it was an art genre for much longer with um, like dance and street art and such. Like it was more than just the music. Yeah. Yeah, you would say the big three of New York. Uh, but, like, if, you know, if someone, but, if someone says, like, Dr. Dre, <laughs> <laughs> well, he made my headphones and that's how I listen to hip-hop. So, yes, he started hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> For their personal experience, I can't agree, I can't disagree with them because, you know, as a music genre, yeah, no, they did not start hip-hop, Dr. Dre, <laughs> but, you know... Um, but what do you feel about uh, people who get credit for being way more feminine presenting for like for example like prince wearing heels or something like that i mean prince has always been I mean, was always someone who played with, uh, with gender, gender yeah genre as well oh that too genres of gen, gen gender ah <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes punk and hip-hop the true gender binary <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um but yeah no that's uh that's also something that you know, appealed to me in, in music before I realized that, you know, listening to Iron Maiden, loving bands of people who have long hair, or, you know, The Cure because, oh my God, someone wears lipstick. Like, dude. But then kind of getting out-masculated by myself, I think. Um, yeah, you're kind of like, you're identifying with something that's too masculine for your own, like, comfort. Is that mm. what you mean? Well, I mean, like music tastes shifting to more uh, to a genre that's more commonly associated with like masculinity within itself, like not necessarily listening to people who appear to be feminine. Um, I'm rambling. No, 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 I get it. I get it. It's um, it's this sort of like weird dichotomy of like rock is for boys, pop is for girls. You mm. know, you know. Rock has got rage in it and anger and emotional value. And pop is, you know, this surface level little plastic thing that you give to a girl to keep her busy before she learns to cook. Yeah, uh, I, like I, I, think, I, I think I came up with, a, with an example that would be applicable. Uh, for example, Iron Maiden, you know, like you said, uh, leather jackets, uh, leather, uh, leather pants, long hair uh, as one example. And it's like, wait, this is actually... The leather jacket, uh, the leather, the leather pants thing is looked down upon because it's so feminine. 
so let's move on to something that's more female, uh, that's more male presenting, well, such as Nine Inch Nails or something. The reason why Iron Maiden wore like all the leather pants and stuff is because the lead singer was like super into BDSM and wanted to wear his kink gear. Which one? <sighs> Fucking hell. It's like Paul Diano, Bruce Dickinson. Oh. Paul. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that was it. It was literally like, it, it was because it, he was kinky as shit and he wanted to wear his fucking assless chaps on stage. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I never... This is it, like, the whole leather jacket punk thing is because it's kinky as fuck. And that's what you learn in musicology, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah, if you just, the entire course of musicology is learning everything about kinky ass rock music for real though like do, do you actually have a lecture in which like you know what this is why the leather pants and here's a picture of Baldi, uh, paul diano in his bdsm gear I... um no i actually did have that in a music history class when i was like 16 and you in did? college yeah yeah we learned about that sort of stuff we had an entire two-year course on music history and it also went down into like so why did iron maiden wear leather yeah because they were kinky as Fuck! <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I need a break from this. <laughs> it's like horny on main. <laughs> oh, I'm done. Get busy earning by Jungle, uh, released 2014, uh, album of the same name, and it's listed this week as best life experience. Fabian, tell us about it. Least Fest 2014. Yeah, Least Fest 2014. 2014. Yeah, yeah that, that was uh, the year I graduated from college just go, just before I went to uni. I volunteered at Leeds Fest as a fire marshal, and uh, this was one of the sets that I managed to see in between my shift. Um, and uh, Jungle, uh, this really cool, they're actually um, like a producer duo from London, but when they perform they have like between 8 and 13 like session musicians on stage. So it's like this massive experience of like live music going on. Everyone's like really, really on top of their game with their performance. And mm-hmm. It was just altogether just fantastic to see them live because I've been listening to them since the album was released which was like um, January 2014, for like six months I was there just like getting myself pumped up for this. Um, 
yeah, it was fantastic. And Leeds Fest 2014 was huge as well. It was the same year the Arctic Monkeys released AM. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were headlining, they were doing the Sunday. Um, yeah, I actually looked up the lineup for that year. Uh, it had a whole bunch of artists who. Oh, yeah. I, I saw Queen of the Stone Age, yeah. like, uh, of Mice and Men. Churches was there, 1975, yeah. Disclosure, yeah. Pendulum. But yeah, what, uh, what made this uh, performance the best performance you ever had? Because I reckon you've seen quite a few. Yeah, I have. Um, but I mean, this was, it was just the fact that I was seeing one of my favorite bands at the time live. It was a sheer musicianship. Right. Like, um, they use uh, a lot of syncopated rhythms, um, and the uh, vocal harmonies are quite complex sometimes. So just watching like a bunch of guys on stage just really committing to the song and really like a absolute musicianship, like top of the game sort of th- sort of stuff. Like that was just a real treat to see. And I just finished at music college, which was like two years of practical music performance knowledge. Right. So to see everything that I had learned in action and being able to recognize how much work goes into um, like that sort of performance, like the more people on stage, you're always going to have more work, especially yeah. in like that sort of setting where you've got everyone doing like a totally different thing and trying to organize everyone around a song. Um, like. So much work goes into doing stuff like that. They were like practicing that stuff before it was even released. So you feel like you would have been uh, not enjoying it as much as you would have uh, if you wouldn't have done your music studies. Yeah, I wouldn't have been able to recognize how much work had gone into that. Yeah, um, and I wouldn't have been able to appreciate the effort that they put in at that gig. It was their first um, major festival that they played, so they really went all out. So I reckon uh, it wasn't the, the the main stage, right? No, it was the enemy stage back when enemy had money, <laughs> <laughs> enough money for a stage. Right. Um, uh, so how many people were in there? Paint the picture for me. Um, was it warm? Was it cold? Was it rainy? Was it sunny? <laughs> I mean, it was. It was uh, like early August in Leeds, so it was absolutely hot, humid, and wet. Like, uh, it was definitely raining. It was, like, uh, between 350 and 450 people in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very packed. And uh, because the fact that it's a tent, everyone was just dragging in all the mud. Right, into yeah. It, and it was, it was an absolute, like, the, the environment was horrible, but the music was great, and that's what kind of makes festivals fun. Like, you're there essentially wallowing in your own shit your own, yeah. for, like, three to four days, but you're there because, like, some of your favorite artists will be playing on some of the biggest stages in your area, yeah. and that really makes it. Did you ever went to see them live again after that? I almost did in Cambridge, but um, I've kind of missed my chances a couple of times, like, it's a bit of like um, lining up having money and being yeah. near them is always difficult. How much of uh, this particular show at uh, the Leeds Festival, um, how important was it that, you, you know, it was kind of a homecoming gig for you because, you know, you're from Leeds? Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, this was actually before I left Leeds. Like, uh, I, I went to do my bachelor's after that. So this yeah. was like um, more like, you know, my last big thing in Leeds before I go off and do other things. So, yeah. So did it feel like some kind of closure then? 
Absolutely, yeah. It did feel like, um, you know, like like a big send off, and I made some great friends there as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was really fun, and uh, it was a nice little story, like an, an icebreaker. Yeah. When you go after uni and you're there, like you know, meeting everyone for the first time, and everything's so new. Yeah. And then you're still wearing your Leeds Fest bracelet, and they're like, "Ah, oh, cool, you went to Leeds Fest. I went to Reading, which is like the sister yeah. festival." So. So. Um, if there's anything uh, that we still need to talk about when it comes to live experiences, it's the difference of going to a festival as a visitor versus going to a festival as a volunteer. Oh, absolutely. Like, um, I've shown you the pictures of Leeds Fest, like the the paid-for uh, uh, camping site, and that was, like, a little city. And that's just yeah. one of the campsites. They had five. Um, and, yeah, I mean, working there, everyone's just too tired to actually mess up their living space. Wow. Like... Uh, the the campsite for the volunteers because I was volunteering it was uh, I put down a deposit and then I got it back yeah so I, I guess I got paid with a ticket to Leeds Fest but um, my car campsite was pristine essentially like mm-hmm. we had a little canteen we you know we had our own showers it, no one was bothered with making everything a mess because we already saw the mess that other people were living yeah but like. You go out into the wilds of it all, <laughs> and you're there with like your little backpack full of water to put out small fires, um, or you're going up the tower uh, to look out, um, and you just see the kind of filth that people are living in. Like oh, there are yeah. people who are like, there, there's actual garbage in their sleeping bag, or like they are no longer using the designated toilet space, which is really just a latrine. It is literally just a trench that you shit in. What, 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 what makes people to not use that? I don't know. Drugs, don't know. probably. Probably but... drugs. Like, we were actually, the police were Jesus. warning us about looking out for this particular, um, like, copycat drug of ecstasy. Oh, uh, that that's bad. That was causing people to have fits. Like, um, there, at the time, there were three other festivals happening all in the country. And that was Latitude, V-Fest, and Reading, mm-hmm. uh, alongside Leeds. And uh, a V-Fest, which had started the same day as Leeds, on the first day someone had died from that pill. Oh, boy. They started to fit, and they died in the, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So it was real serious. Like, uh, people really go all out, and there's, like, there's a maximum amount of cocaine you're allowed to have on your person. Like, they're not even bothering, like, saying no cocaine whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this is where we start cutting it off. All right, but, you know, when it comes to that, you, I reckon when you go see Jungle, you feel like, I can't, go and enjoy myself because I'll still have responsibilities after the show. No, no, it's like, um, because the time between shifts was so long that I felt like I could enjoy myself. I could, you know, have a few beers and then fall asleep and then wake up in time for my next shift. Okay. So, um, it they did plan it out really well so that you didn't feel like you were missing everything. Mm-hmm. You could choose when your shifts were. And then, I mean, there was a bit of, you know, negotiation because everyone would probably want to go see the headline act and everyone... Yeah want to go to the main stage all the time and you know work around that and you know so they'd uh you know they'd make sure that the majority of people got what they wanted right no that's that's fair but you know do you have any any weird stories like fires you had to put out well on the sunday which was the last day um when people like had to pack up which they didn't do they just kind <laughs> of just left all their stuff there uh, festivals now have got this thing where, like, if you just want to leave your tent or you don't want to take your tent home, you can um, just kind of just bundle it up and put it in, uh, like, a skip. 
and mm -hmm. it will be dismantled and used for um you know recycling being recycled, or yeah. given to refugees if it's still in good nick or you know done up a bit and sold on um but i often saw people dismantling like gazebos and jousting with them <laughs> setting fire to them uh you know just going absolutely apeshit like people just go rabid because you know the fridays uh, the festivals friday saturday sunday and the monday mm. you just have smoldering bits of plastic all around or yeah pretty much it, it looks like an after the aftermath of some sort of battle it is like it looks like the bloody som <laughs> it's muddy oh, as fuck <laughs> yeah no i bet um gonna quickly move on uh it's final track of the day uh we've been recording for over an hour already so uh yeah final track love safe But most shop. Uh, funniest thing I noticed when I was looking uh, at the music video or you know the accompanying visuals uh, on YouTube is that uh, you know it's a Japanese song and they put English subtitles on the video. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, Fabian, tell me all about it. Um, well, I chose this one because it kind of does fall into future funk vaporwave sort of mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, and I kind of got into most shop. I originally got into them like uh, through a vaporwave playlist on YouTube that I used to listen to whilst I was working for Deliveroo, it would mean that I wouldn't have to choose music, I'd just put on like an hour and a half of like a mix and yeah. be fine. But um, I didn't actually know it was Moshop in it, so rediscovering them like by name yeah. uh, was really nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I chose that because I do think that Vaporwave and uh, sort of the philosophy behind it not necessarily, well, I mean, yes, also the critique uh, of capitalism, capitalism and uh, sort of especially hauntology aligns up with the trans experience an awful lot. It's something I've been thinking about a lot as well, because, like you said before, we always talk about history when we're talking together. Yeah. And history is a big part of the trans experience. Also, redefining your history, like, uh, for me, turning my childhood into a boyhood. There yeah. are things about my childhood that are inherently feminine, but there are things I can redefine and... Um, change perspective on before we get into that uh, before we get into that too deeply uh, <laughs> just you know this is under the name uh, most recent discoveries so just oh yeah <laughs> yeah sorry yeah uh, we'll, we'll we'll get back to it but you know this is just through Spotify playlists yeah uh, literally this, was. Is it that was... is that how you would discover most of your new music because it also came up uh, while listening to Dorian Electra yeah yeah I <laughs> when uh, I, I usually put on like um, song radios on Spotify because I do like to listen to new music though, and it is a way that I can discover new music and yeah. 
uh, the song radio is because Spotify's algorithm is so damn strong. That's true. You get some good shit, and Shop is one of them. All right, uh, but how uh, did the Spotify pick up on you listening to uh, Japanese Vaporwave? Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think it might have come because I was also listening to like Kariko Bonito. Oh, yeah. Because okay. uh, she sings in Japanese, Japanese sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Grimes, because her aesthetic appropriates from Japan. Um, you know, I like, uh, those sort of... Um, sort of edge of indie pop sort of things. Right. Because, you know, that's uh, when when listening to this and, uh, you know, Dorian Electra S Club 7 as well, it's all very poppy. And uh, yeah. I was just kind of wondering, is there some kind of snobbery going on like within <laughs> uh, within musicology? You know, you feel like as soon as you dive into all that and all of the, uh, uh, all of the techniques behind it and all of the knowledge behind it, it kind of, I feel like that people tend to be dismissive of just pop music. Oh, absolutely. Like a lot of my classmates are people who are classically trained and yeah. almost exclusively will listen to classical music and will think, I think, I mean, they won't admit to it, but to some degree we'll think they're better than someone. Yeah. Bit. Like, you know, my music doesn't have lyrics, so I need to analyze it <laughs> to know what it's about. <laughs> I have to do all the legwork when I listen to <laughs> you have uh, to have a singer explain your music to you like some sort of baby. Oh Is that God. sort of like a version? Yeah. I like pop music because I like to have fun when I listen to music. Right. I don't want to, if I want to analyze something, I will sit down and analyze it and I'll do a good job at it. But, I mean, um, yeah. I'm going to be even worse here because on top of a singer, I also need you to explain it all to me. <laughs> um, so bring it in, Vaporwave and the Trans Experience, I'm oh, ready. Yeah, Vaporwave and the Trans Experience. This is something that I've been thinking about for some time and you're going to have to listen to my mind farts. That's all right. <laughs> uh, and I'm pretty, yeah, uh, uh, I can already smell them. Your mind farts. So. Yeah, potent. I've, I've had beans today, so they're coming out loud and rapid. We've made it four <laughs> episodes into this podcast without any fart jokes. <laughs> and here comes Fabian, the mature master's degree, uh, master's graduate. <laughs> yeah. With his fart jokes and his attempt at musicology. <laughs> um, yeah, Vaporwave and the Trans Experience. Um, Vaporwave is something that uses a philosophy called hauntology, which uh, is a pun. Uh, on uh, ontology, which is the study of things that exist. Mm -hmm. Ontology is the things, uh, study of things that are ghosts. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> specifically within the philosophy of vaporwave, is something that uses um, late twentieth century uh, images and aesthetics mm -hmm. of uh, capitalism. Yeah. So, like, you know, the old school Pepsi logo, Pepsi Man from the 90s. And also very uh, tongue-in-cheek. Very tongue-in-cheek. Like, uh, early internet things like AOL and AIM and MSN, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. Dial um, modems. Yeah, exactly. And, um, like, the old uh, My Computer symbol on Windows, like Windows 95, 98 sort of things. Yeah. Um, early internet imagery that... Um, has a very corporate and cold look to it being used like very tongue-in-cheek exactly to critique capitalism of that era and its effect that it's had on our future and this sort of naivety that the corporations have then had when thinking about our futures and trying to create this futuristic environment with these um you know 
new internet companies like you know, Amazon had just come out and PayPal had just started. This is the future. These things are going to, you know, redefine our world and make it better. Like, no, Amazon now is in the shit because it's not paying taxes and yeah. breaking a lot of workers' rights laws. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world because he abuses millions of people every day. Yep. Um, not just f from, like, the sales of products from his own warehouses. This is also third-party sales on uh, Amazon as well. So he, not only is he abusing people directly, he's also facilitating the abuse. All right, this so, is this is just uh, financial and, uh, you know, uh, class-related. Uh, Where does the trans come in? Um, well, this is sort of like the critique of capitalism, but the trans sort of experience is the same thing as, um, you know, redefining your history. The uh, With Vaporwave, it is a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it is mainly something that's aesthetic, where they talk about the na naivety of... Uh, having an imagined future that isn't the reality. Um, with trans people, there certainly isn't a naivety, but it is. Um, there's a future that you wish you had that isn't the future that you have now. All right. So in the same way, uh, vaporwave kind of critiques capitalism, uh, as in it's not what they thought it would be back in the late nineties. The same yeah. in the same way, trans people uh, realize that their life now isn't what they thought it would be when they were like kids. Also, taking solace in this imagined future um, that was thought of in the past. So, mm -hmm. you know, the aesthetic that is used in vaporwave of like '80s synth wave, like flying cars and big, you know, like in um, like in Blade Runner with the big pyramids in LA that mm -hmm. uh, they thought there would be. So Taking solace and finding comfort in um, submersing yourself in that image of a future. And with trans people, it is the same as like, you know, I find solace in the image of myself that I wish I had. Right. And using that as the fuel for, um, you know, transitioning and becoming someone who is, uh, you know, developing myself still and learning still and... Yeah, like uh, redefining my childhood into a boyhood, mm -hmm. changing my history, and using the ideas of myself that I had in the past to change the ideas of myself that I'll have in the future. And it's this idea of ghosts as well, these future ghosts. And how you shouldn't be chasing them or should be chasing them? Well, it depends on what they are. All it's right, like yeah. with the... Uh, with, uh, Uh, corporations of the 90s, you definitely shouldn't be chasing a world that's led by AOL. Yeah, okay, um, But it's... Uh, you definitely shouldn't be chasing that naive dream of, like, capitalism is okay. Mm-hmm. And vaporwave and being trans are two very anti-capitalist things. Yeah, yeah, I feel like they are. I mean... And at least they definitely should be. Yeah, I mean, uh, cap I mean capitalism is something that is maintained by the pillars of cis-heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. So... And profits off of it. And profits off of it and perpetuates it. Yeah. Um, so to be against that is to be against capitalism, quite fundamentally. And um, to be against capitalism is, capitalism is to be against that as well. So you know, vaporwave and being trans go hand in hand in more ways than one. All right. And on, uh, on, on that great one-liner there, I uh, want to... Go ahead and wrap it up. I've got one question left for you, which is kind of the overarching question of this podcast, which is what does music mean to you in your daily life? Uh, what did I say earlier? I, I, said, <laughs> <laughs> um, I said I'm a, a musicology student, so I've had music ruined for me time and time again. But music in my daily life is definitely 
a home to go to. Mm-hmm. It's a comfort. It can be a punching bag for my road. It can be a warm, comfy chair. It can be a hug, a bed, a bath, a shower, a cup of tea. It's everything. It's a comfort and um, an outlet and an input all in one. It's a home. (laughs) All right. And on that note, I'd like to thank you all again for listening. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, you can drop a line at queersoundspod at gmail.com, on Twitter at queersoundspod, queersoundspod.tumblr.com, or just visit our website, queersounds.com. And with that, we'll see you next episode. We'll hear you loud and queer.